You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Michelle Saylor-Tucker, and she is founder and CEO of Saylor-Tucker. We're going to talk to her a little bit about the work she does with businesses and business owners helping them exit successfully. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the exit process. We're going to talk about what companies can do, what founders can do, CEOs can do to help maximize the value, the work they can do beforehand. I think all too often, I think people like us get calls uh, a month or two before someone wants to sell, and that's a really hard time to make change. But we're going to talk a little bit about really the process and, and what you can do to maximize it and hopefully make it simpler, avoid some of the drama. I've seen a lot of drama in these things. so And I'm excited to, to talk about this and, and hear Michelle's stories of the company she's worked with. So with that, Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So before we kind of dig into the whole exit process and valuation and maximizing valuation, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this work? What was your what was your professional story? Give us the uh, give us a little bit of the um, the journey that you've been on. Sure. So I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always owned small businesses. I've owned different businesses such as publishing, event companies, technology. And I've always, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I did kind of get stuck in corporate America when I went to work for Xerox. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Xerox actually recruited me. And I was there for about six months, and my name became the closer. So when somebody couldn't close a deal, they would call me. I would come in and, and get the deal done. So within six months of being there, my, my manager came to me and said, Michelle, you really should apply for the senior vice president position overseeing the South area, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas. And she said, you'll never get it, but you should apply anyway because it's a great experience and you'll learn a lot. And I said, well, why would I apply for something I'm never going to get? She goes, well, you know, you're applying up against people who have been here for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. You've been here six months. She said, but you'll learn more in this experience than ever before. So I did do it. It was a three-month grueling process. And I guess I truly am the closer because I did get the position. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and anyway, um, but once I got it, I really didn't like it because I love selling. I love, you know, interacting with clients. I love solving problems. I love coming up with solutions. And when you're in a, a vice president position for a major corporation, you're really just setting up meetings to set up more meetings to do reports and <laughs> You know, it just wasn't something that I really liked. So I went out and searched for a franchise that I could buy on the side because I was still getting six figures, great benefits at Xerox. I was going to keep my my day job and just find a franchise. So I stumbled across this franchise that had two locations. My husband actually knew the owner. 
And I wanted to buy a franchise. And they said, no, we don't want you to buy a franchise. We want you to actually partner with us. We'll give you an equity position, and then we'll give you a franchise. Okay. So that right there is what kind of started my franchise development, franchise consulting, and franchise sales career. So I did that for a while. And then they did what a lot of businesses do, Bruce. They, we really grew. I sold hundreds and hundreds of franchises for them, but they never really built a solid foundation to handle the growth. Mm. And companies do this all the time that they focus on marketing and it's great to focus on marketing and sales, but you also got to make sure you build a company to operate on all six P's. And we talk about the six P's and exit rich. Well, they didn't do that. So the franchisees were upset and disgruntled and the franchisor was over promising and under delivering. And, you know, even though I was a partner with the franchisor, I'm team franchisee because I sold them a bill of goods. I want to make sure we deliver. (laughs) And these franchisees are my friends. You know, I go to their weddings. I go to the hospital when they have babies and go to their birthday parties. So anyway, I ended up having a franchisor buy me out because, you know, I realized very quickly that our values did not align anymore. So then I decided, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? (laughs) So I'm like, well, I'll just transition to selling companies because how much harder can it be than selling franchises? Yeah. And, you know, um, it is very different than selling franchises, especially because, as Steve Forbes quotes, eight out of ten businesses will not sell. And Steve Forbes gave us a glowing testimonial for Exit Rich. And he's right. Eight out of ten businesses will not sell. So then I kind of transitioned into fixing businesses because I said, if I don't fix them, if I don't help grow them, if I don't help build them to sell, then I'll starve to death. So now I really specialize in buying, fixing, selling, growing. I buy businesses and flip them. I partner with business owners investing my money, time, energy, effort. Sometimes I'll bring other partners in and um, we'll put them on a build to sell plan. And, you know, our exit is always within three to five years, sometimes longer, but typically three to five years. And I've, you know, personally, I've sold over 500 companies. My company and I together have sold over a thousand businesses. And I've done probably, I don't know, thousands of evaluations and and help thousands of business owners. That's great. Now, when you say, uh, you know, some companies can't sell, is it because of the nature of the company or how well the company is run and they're just not set up to sell, but if changed, if kind of rehabilitated, they would be sellable? Yep. So there's a lot of reasons for that. And change, if they would change, yes, they can be rehabilitated and sold. But there's lots of reasons for that. Number one, most business owners never think about selling until they have to due to a catastrophic event occurring. Yeah. And when a catastrophic event occurs, whether it's internal or external, like such as COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of businesses are trying to sell now, but they're never going to sell for maximum dollar. They'll have to sell for pennies on the dollar because lots of industries are not doing well right now. So you really have to plan your exit and not just decide to sell one day when you wake up because of partner disputes or divorce or you know health issues. Usually when a catastrophic event occurs, the business is trending downward, not upward. The best time to sell is when the business is doing well. So they really need to plan out their exit. You know, it's kind of like we have kids, right? We plan where our kids are going to go to kindergarten, where they're going to go to preschool, kindergarten, elementary, high school, where they're going to go to college. Mm -hmm. Same thing if we have money and assets, you know, we plan our will, you know, who's going to get what. We have a succession plan. But business owners don't plan for their biggest asset in their life, which is typically their business. And why is that? Like what's 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 you the know I there? think I think the main reason is because business owners just get caught up in the day to day. They're transactional instead of transformational, and they just get caught up in the day to day, and they don't really think of their business as an asset that they need to plan to sell one day. Yeah, just focus on running the business. They're focused than, on running the business. That's right, yeah, that's and right. and it's very tunnel vision. And if you would build a business to sell. 
from the beginning and build your business to operate, build a solid foundation to operate on all six P's, all six cylinders, then not only will you have a sellable business, but you'll have a sustainable and scalable business that's extremely profitable. And so so give us insight on the six P's. What are, what are the things that you look for when you're deciding whether a business is sellable at the moment? Yep. I'll give you I'll give you a high level, but then I'll I'll give you a little bit of eye level too. So yeah. you have a deeper understanding. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So number one is people. Mm-hmm. You don't build a business, you build people, and people build a business. A lot of businesses are not sellable because the person is the business. So let's say a dental practice, one dentist, and has assistants. I take that dentist out of the practice. Is there a business anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same thing with a chiropractor. You got one chiropractor. Take that chiropractic out, there is no business anymore. They've got a job, not a business. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the big difference, Bruce, is that many business owners have a job in which they go to work every day, not a business that works for them every day. Yeah. And so you got to define the difference. And if you have a job, you need to build a business because mm-hmm. a lot of times these business owners go to sell their job and it is not sellable. They don't have a business to sell. So number one is people. You got to have the right people in the right right seats. And if you have a professional service business like chiropractic, dentist, medical practice, you know, you got to make sure that you're actually building a business with other associates. Because yeah. if you don't, then yes, you might still be able to sell your business, but you're going to have to stick around for several years mm-hmm. and you're going to have to stru- structure to sell based upon you sticking around. Yeah. So you really need the right people in the right spot, in the right seat. And then you have to ask the who question. Who opens the doors? Who deals with client service issues? Who deals with manufacturing? Who deals with distribution? Logistics, you know, legal issues, environmental issues. The clue, Bruce, is never put you next to the who. (laughs) Your name should (laughs) be in none of those boxes. That's right. Don't put your name in the box. Don't box yourself in as the owner because you want to build a business that runs without you. You want to be able, you know, if you want to take off for a month, great. Your business never misses a beat. And that's what buyers want to buy. Buyers want to buy businesses that are sustainable without the owner. And then if you have a larger business that you're trying to sell, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, you better make sure you have a layer of management in there. Make sure that you have like a CO, chief operating officer, or a CFO, chief financial officer. So people is really important. The second P is product. So this is the product and or the industry you're in. So ask yourself, is your product on the way up or on the way out? Do you have an Amazon or do you have a Blockbuster? And if you have a Blockbuster, guess what? Here's a seventh P for you. Pivot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you definitely got to pivot. And you got to ask yourself these transformational questions. You know, ask yourself, if you're in a product that's dying, and a lot of businesses, a lot of industries are dying right now because of COVID, ask yourself, what business are you in? What do you do really well? And what yeah. business should you be in? And here's a, great, here's a great quick example to illustrate this point. Amazon. They start out in what business? There were books originally, yeah. Exactly. They were books. So they asked themselves, what business are we in? We're in the book business. Then they asked themselves, what did we do really, really well? They said, you know what? We do fulfillment really, really well. Mm -hmm. What business should we be in? The fulfillment business and not just books. Those three transformational questions really transformed them into a bookseller, into a multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that they are today. Yeah. And Amazon has literally changed the way that buyers purchase, that consumers purchase products and services. That's an interesting one because I think that, um, you know, a lot of companies fail to kind of do the self-reflection or the analysis to say, I mean, there's a lot of things they can be good at, but like really think about where are we exceptional relative to the market and and finding that unique kind of capability and then building your business, the future of your business around that capability can be really key. Right. 
So, okay, so we talked about people, we talked about Mm -hmm. product, let's talk about processes. Okay. Processes are another big one, and most business owners, kind of like planning your exit, most business owners don't plan their exit and they don't think about processes until they have to. Yeah. <laughs> and usually a process is developed by a customer complaining, oh, the customer's unhappy, let's develop a process around that. Oh, oh, somebody got hurt on a job, let's develop a process around safety. You know, processes should really be developed from the beginning with the customer experience in mind. Have you ever watched a movie, The Founder? Uh, yeah, sure. Great one. <laughs> Great movie, right? Yeah. So funny. the McDonald brothers, yeah. the McDonald brothers back in the 40s said, hey, we want to we want to develop a fast food restaurant because back in the 40s, you had the drive-in where you pull up and they would come out roller states, t- take your order. And the problem with that is that the order was always wrong. The food was always cold. And it took forever, right? So McDonald's yeah. said, what is our customer objective? What is our mission? Our mission, our customer objective is to provide... Great tasting food, great tasting hot food in two minutes or less. Well, how do we make that happen? How do we design our process with the customer experience in mind? Because it's all about the customer experience, right? Mm -hmm. If you mess on the customer experience, you might as well go out of business. Yeah. So remember when they went, Bruce, remember when they went to the empty tennis court and they took all their employees out to the empty tennis court? Do you remember that? The McDonald brothers? Yeah. Yeah. So they go out to the empty tennis court. They bring all their employees. They bring chalk and they're drawing out the process on the tennis court. Layouts. And then they erase it. They, yep, layouts. they, They come back. They draw it again. They did this all day so they could map out. Who takes the order? Who toasts the buns? Who cooks the burger? Who puts the pickles on the bun? And who gives it to the client in two minutes or less? Mm-hmm. That process right there, designed with the customer experience in mind, is why you can eat at McDonald's in Russia, Hong Kong, you know, New, Z- New Zealand. You act same experience because yeah, it's really of the incredible. process. You can, you can walk into, I mean, companies that have done this well, like you can walk into any place, anytime, anywhere in the world, and it is a super consistent product. Right. Burger King, Whataburger, McDonald's. It's all the fast food places. So <laughs> if other well, companies can kind of model themselves. Yeah. But, you know, just to, this design, you need the business owners have to determine what do they want their customer experience to be and then design that process around the customer experience. Make sure it's efficient, make sure it's productive, make sure it's documented with training manuals and SOP checklist, and then make sure that the, the employees are trained on such. You'd be surprised how many businesses, even businesses 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, that don't have their policy and procedure books together. Yeah. So, and, and how do, how does that help valuation? I guess give me give me a, a sense of how what how does from a an acquirer point of view what are they really looking for in terms of process? Yeah, so they're looking for documentation. They're looking for policy and procedure manuals. They're looking for you know checklists, employee handbooks, employee non-competes, all of that stuff. And I'm not going to say it necessarily helps valuations, but it will hurt it if you don't have it. Yeah. So let's say you're a larger company and let's say you're a $20 million company and you don't have your policy and procedure manuals. Well, if those have to be designed, then the buyer is going to subtract from the valuation of what it would cost to get that done. Yeah, exactly. But what I do with my owners, because I don't want to go there by subtracting on evaluation. I like to add and not subtract. (laughs) So what I like to do is, is get my sellers to get it done. I mean, we're working with a $52 million company right now and they were lacking on policy and procedure manuals. I said, look, you guys, you have to stop what you're doing and you got to get these processes together. Yeah, get this, get this done. Uh, yes. And, and so they said, well, we hired a consultant, but then we fired the consultant. And okay. I said, well, why did you fire the consultant? And they said, because they're telling us what to do. We don't need them to tell us what to do. We just need them to do it for us. <laughs> 
So they okay. say we might as well just fire them and do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So that's important. So the fourth P is proprietary. Now, proprietary, Bruce, is a number one value driver. It will get you a higher multiple than anything else. And there's six pillars to proprietary, but I'll go through them really quickly. Number one is branding. You know, the more branded, the more well-branded your company is, as long as your brand is relevant in the consumer's mind, meaning Blockbuster. Nobody's going to pay lots of money for Blockbuster, right? Because Blockbuster went bust. Yeah. So no longer relevant. But who's the biggest brand in the world? The biggest brand in the world, period? Yes. Uh, I don't know. Who would you say? Apple. Ah, okay. $389 billion is what their brand is worth. They're the biggest brand in the world. They're over Coca-Cola. They're over McDonald's. Are they? Really? Amazon. $389 billion just for their brand. That's not including EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. That's not including inventory or assets or anything else like that. That's just the brand. So build your brand and you'll build your price tag. Then the other thing in proprietary is trademarks. Trademarks are very valuable. Here's a mistake that business owners make. As they start a business and then they get a state trademark, but they never check the government website to make sure the federal trademark is available. So they'll be in business 5, 10, 15 years and all of a sudden receive a cyst and desist. Correct. And guess what? A lot of them will throw thousands upon thousands of dollars, hire an attorney, and end up losing because somebody else has a federal trademark. So then they have to stop using that company name and they have to go get another company name and they have to start branding all over again. Oh, so geez. spend the $1,500 to $2,000 and get a federal trademark. I mean, same thing with podcasts. You know, I tell my podcasters, go get a federal trademark on your podcast because you don't yeah. want to build your brand on your podcast and then have to stop using it. Yeah, that's okay. exactly true. And then patents are very valuable. You know, a lot of people say, oh, pants, you know, forget about pants because once you do that, then everybody knows what you're doing. That's that's wrong advice. If you ever listen to Shark Tank, what's the number one question they all ask? <laughs> yeah, does, is it, do, do you, you have, have a patent? patent? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent? Do you have a patent? utility patent? Do you have a patent pending? <laughs> you know, so get a patent. Patents are very valuable. Contracts are extremely valuable. Manufacturing contracts, distribution contracts. So these um, are contracts with with the people you're selling to that specify a certain price over a certain time and volume. Well, I would say, you know, like let's say you have a distribution company and you have distributor rights and you have exclusive rights for the state of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Well, make sure you get that in writing and make sure that that contract's transferable. Because transferable you were, on sale, you mean? Correct. Yeah. Because ninety nine point nine percent of all sales are asset sales. So here's the biggest problem, Bruce, is client contracts. The most valuable contracts are client contracts because buyers want to buy re- reoccurring revenue. Yeah, exactly. They, they want to make sure the business has got cash flow coming in. So client contracts are the most valuable. But I will tell you, 99.9% of owners never have the two-sentence transferability clause in their contracts. So if they sell the, if they sell the company, then the contract is null and void. If they sell the company, the contract is null and void. That is correct. And the deal will stop. They won't sell the company because the buyers are buying the contracts. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> get, so get the language. Yeah, the, we, We're yeah. selling another company for $70 million, and um, they have 125 contracts, and none of them have the transferability oh, clause. Oh, so, but now painful. they're starting, so they just signed up five new contracts, and they have our transferability language we set. Yeah. The other valuable thing in proprietary is databases. 
And okay. um, databases are typically undervalued and, uh, and overlooked by most M&A advisors because they don't understand the value of them. But what I'm talking to you right now is what I call synergies, right? These are synergies that strategic buyers, competitive buyers, private equity groups will pay a premium price for. So you want to make sure you're building these synergies. So database is a huge synergy, especially if your clients can be retargeted and repurposed. Facebook paid $19 billion, $19 billion for WhatsApp, and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money. So it's not always about how much money the company is making. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you want your company to make money, but there's been case after case after case that shows how a synergy or a certain asset in a business can be sold because of that asset. So Facebook knew that they were paying $19 billion for a company that was losing money, but WhatsApp had a billion users, and they knew they could ROI and monetize on that. Yeah, so it's more about what the acquirer can right. do with the assets to make money, not necessarily how those assets are currently making exactly. money. Exactly. And then the other thing in proprietary is what I call is IP real estate. IP real estate is not your commercial building or your commercial land. IP real estate is that real estate that you're on top. So let's say that you manufacture you manufacture mattresses, mm-hmm. and you're number one on Wayfair. Oh, uh, okay, interesting. Extremely valuable, right? Yeah. Extremely. Let's say that you have a diet company, a weight loss company, and Glenn Beck is endorsing you. Yeah. Glenn Beck can only endorse one weight loss company at a time. You know, let's say you have a skincare company and you're on Oprah's favorite things. Yeah. This is prime real estate that strategics and competitors will pay top dollar for. Interesting. This is how you get higher valuations. How, and how do, you, how do you value those things? I mean, what's there a formula or some logic behind how you actually price that? Well, there's different formulas. There's different formulas. But when we get businesses like this, we go to market without a price tag. So it's really because, whatever the market will bear. Correct. We, well, we'll do an evaluation and we'll come up with a range. Mm-hmm. But we go to market without a price tag because we know by finding the right synergistic buyers, we're going to create a bid, a bidding war. And the buyer that wants these synergies the most will pay the most. Yeah. So, you just yeah. The, so it's really about what the, the what the buyer is willing to pay. Yeah. Interesting. So given these kind of the attributes, the things you look at, when do you need to start looking at these things? So, so yeah. I think we both kind of mentioned, you know, too often, you know, it's people are thinking about doing this stuff three months before they want to sell or they're in a catastrophic situation and they're forced to sell. When do you really kind of start this process? Like when, when, when would you? Yeah. Can I give you the other two P's and then I'll tell you when to start oh, the yeah, process? Oh, yeah, sure. Keep going. So the fifth yeah. P is patrons and patrons is your, your customer base. You know, a lot of businesses follow the 80-20 rule where 80% of their business comes from 20% of their clients. So 80% sure. of their revenue is 20% of their clients. And if they lose a few clients, they could be in big trouble, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you have customer diversification, not client concentration. Also, if you've been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years, your clients might be aging out, Bruce. Yeah. So you got to make sure you replace and diversify. And let me tell you something. You got to keep asking the questions to your clients. What do you need? What do you want? How can I make it easier for you to do business with us? Because whoever makes it easiest for the consumer to do business is the company that's going to win. Amazon is winning because they make it so easy to do business with them. Yeah, particularly right now. Exactly. And so you want to make sure that you keep asking those questions. And then the last P, probably the most important P to all of us, Bruce, is profits. Yeah. We're all in this to make money. I put profits last because, you know, clients will come to me and say, Michelle, I have a profit problem. 
<laughs> no, profits is a symptom of not having the right people in place yeah. or not having the right products or not having efficient, productive processes or not protecting your IP, your proprietary. So problem is always, profits are always a symptom, never the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So when do people start thinking about this? Well, it's kind of like when you're pregnant, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't had that one yet, but yeah. <laughs> May, well, do you have kids, Bruce? I do. I have four children. So yeah, so I've been Okay, there. <laughs> so your spouse has <laughs> had that. But when do you start thinking about preschool? When do you start thinking about elementary and high school and college and saving and all this stuff? When you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you really start thinking about this stuff from the beginning of starting or, or buying a business. And why? And the reason you think about it in the beginning is because if you can build, remember the franchisor that I told you I partnered with? Yep. And it came crashing down because they didn't build a solid foundation on these six cylinders on these six P's? Yep. If they would have built a solid foundation on these six P's, they wouldn't have had the issues that they had. Yeah. So you want to think about this stuff in the beginning. You want to plan for the six P's in the beginning. And you want to make sure if you're a visionary, which most entrepreneurs are, that you get a really strong integrator that can integrate, implement, and make sure that your vision comes to life and make sure that the business is operating on all six cylinders, all six Ps. So yeah. you really do this from the beginning, you know. And if you haven't done it from the beginning, it's never too late to start. I mean, most companies, even larger companies, don't always operate on all six Ps. They might operate on five, you know, four or five. But some of the ones that, that were selling for 50, 70, 80 million, most of them are on all six Ps. Yeah. Yeah, yep. and then you'll have companies go back and forth. You know, sometimes they'll be on six P's and they just lost a bunch of people, mm-hmm. or COVID happened, yeah, exactly. or yeah. something happened in the economy. Yeah, but I think the important thing is, you know, these are not just great things to drive valuation. They actually make great companies. So even if you don't exactly. sell, <laughs> if you don't sell, they're good things to do. Yeah, because here's the goal: the goal is to build a sustainable company that can run without you. Yeah, the goal is to build a scalable company that you can scale. So you can be more profitable. And when you are ready to sell, you'll have a go mine that's ready to sell. Because here's the bottom line. We haven't talked about this yet. But when I wrote my first book in 2013 called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth, I did the research and learned that 70 to 85 to 95% of all startups will go out of business. So those startups from one to five years. But when I wrote Exit Rich in 2019 and did the same research... I learned that the business landscape had changed dramatically. It flip-flopped. So now it's only 30% of startups will go out of business. But listen to this. Out of 27.6 million companies, the businesses that have been in business 10 years or longer, 70% of those businesses will go out of business. 70%. Wow. So if you want to stay in business and not become a statistic and sell your business and not become a statistic of 8 out of 10 don't sell, then you really need to read Exit Rich and build your business to operate on all six cylinders, yeah. all six speeds. Uh, and where, where do, I guess, companies typically go wrong? Is there, is there one that typically comes up for you more often than not or is particularly problematic? Or if you don't do soon enough, it's, it's the hardest to really move the needle on? Yeah, I think the biggest one that comes to mind is, again, they don't plan their exit from the beginning. So when they think about selling, they're like, I want to sell and I want to sell in six months. <laughs> and I want to sell for $10 million dollars. Well, great. I love to sell your business for $10 million, but then when I do the valuation, they're maybe worth a million dollars. I don't know. There's no way they're going to sell for $10 million, but then they can't afford to sell for a million because by the time they pay off debt, commissions, taxes, there's not enough money for them to enter the next phase of their life. Yeah, exactly. And that's the biggest issue. So, 
Yeah, so that's the biggest issue. So you really got to start thinking about selling. We call it an, an exit rich. I call it the Seller Tucker GPS exit model. You know, mm-hmm. start when you start a business or buy a business, start with the end game in mind. Determine your desired price tag, what you want to sell your business for. That's your destination, where you want to end up at. So if you say, I want to end up at $10 million, that's great. What are you worth today? So let's say you're worth a million dollars today. Yeah. What time frame do you want to do that in? Let's say you want to do it in seven years. Great. Now you know your destination, right? $10 million. Now you know your evaluation at a million. Now you know your seven-year time frame. Now what buyers are going to buy your $10 million company? Exactly. Five different types of buyers. Then once you know the buyers, what's their financial criteria? And what is their characteristics that they have to have in the company to, to spend $10 million. So if business owners, entrepreneurs would just start planning, because nobody plans to fail. They fail the plan. Mm-hmm. If they would start just planning their exit, you'd have a lot more, you'd have a lot less failures at selling. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And so tell us about the new book a little bit more. What does it cover? When is it coming out? So Exit Rich, um, it's actually coming out January 26th. So we had to pivot too, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> we were supposed to come out in April 2020, but you know, everything in 2020 has just been pushed. <laughs> so yeah. we're coming out January of 2021. However, listeners can buy the book now and read the book today because anybody who buys the book will send them the digital download. So if they go to exitrichbook.com for $24.79, that includes the book, which is less than it is on Amazon, plus includes shipping. They will receive the digital download immediately so they can start reading it now. Plus, they'll receive a lifetime book membership to Exit Rich Book Club where they will get information about, you know, I have training videos in there. I have documents. I mean, so many people come to me and say, Michelle, what's an operations manual look like? What does an employee handbook look like? What's a non-compete look like? What does an LOI, letter of intent, look Mm -hmm. like? What's closing documents look like? What's due diligence checklist? We have all those documents in there for their review and download. Plus, I get a 30-day membership in the club CEOs where we do hot seats, Q&As, and masterminds. Awesome. And then we ship the book to their doorstep in January. So the book is really, Exit Rich is really a blueprint. It was endorsed by Steve Forbes. It's an Inc. original, uh, forward written by Kevin Harrington. Sharon Lecter is my co-author, who Mm -hmm. wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Oh, yeah. Well, that's great. So if people want to find out more about you and and the work that you do beyond the book, what's the best way to get that information? So they can text Michelle to 888-526-5750. And when they text Michelle, then they'll get a text message back with my websites and all of my social media that they can contact me or follow me. Perfect. I'll make sure that that code is on the show notes here so that people can click through or text that and get that information. Michelle, this has been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me as well. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.